You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica. Episode 22. Hi, I'm Jessica Pearson, body image and weight loss coach. And I'm Beth Barnett-Babel, integrative health dietitian. We're talking about food sensitivities today. I almost can't believe that we haven't even covered this yet because in the early days of path nutrition, this is what we mainly focused on. Mm-hmm. It's actually like how we came together in our work because you were a dietitian living and working in the world mm-hmm. and I was supporting your clients once they had their results with these lab tests. Yes, because I am terrible at meal planning. And you were like, I got this. <laughs> Yeah, I would teach them all about the food, you know, because it's such an important and intensive Mm -hmm. process that requires, you know, quite a bit of support. If they hadn't had that support, I'm not sure it would have been like successful for them. So why do you think people are curious about this topic? I feel like it's a little bit buzzy, but like what else and why? Well, people are curious about this topic for a variety of reasons as they are with most things. But I do think that it applies. At first I was like, well, do we really want to do food sensitivities on our podcast about diet culture? And I was like, yes, because many people, I do see companies advertise or people do request food sensitivity testing as a way to lose weight. But I feel like it should not be the main driver to discover what food sensitivities you do have. So that's kind of like, I do think it people are really curious about them because many people do feel like they have them. But I feel like it's important to kind of look at it from all the different angles of why we would want to test or talk about it. Yeah, it is kind of a good example of undesired weight is a symptom of something else that's going on. Because if you do have gut issues or inflammation related to food sensitivities, then, you know, yes, there may be some weight loss, but our focus should really be on the health benefits that come along from actually decreasing inflammation and reactions and really improving, you know, your life when you think about people that come to us with migraines or eczema, and you know, they're Mm -hmm. improving some of these symptoms, like that's, that's, to, to me, from what I've seen and experienced now personally and professionally, like that's far more valuable than what we see on a scale. Correct. I agree. Yeah, I really will talk about this more as we go through this topic today. But that is my main thing is when people come to me for wanting to do the food sensitivity test that we offer, that it is related to very negative part a symptom that they carry with them like migraines or IBS or eczema, those, those types of things or sharp pains after eating, you know, so I want to focus on that. So yeah, kick it off. Okay, so let's kick it off, Beth. What is a food sensitivity? And how are they different from food allergies? Yes, I think that this is where people (laughs) struggle the most is to learn how to talk about what is the difference between an allergy and a sensitivity, and an intolerance. And so there are different ones. So allergies are a very specific immune system response with mainly IgE, which is an immunoglobin E. So we have different immunoglobins that we hear about, IgG, 
IgA, IgM, and IgE. And so when we are going to an allergist or going to your doctor and you ask for a food allergy test or a type of allergy test, they are going to lean to these two tests that are going to test this part of the immune system. This is the true allergy response. They are typically immediate responses and they will range in severity. So the most severe thing that we will see or that you will have have heard of is when the response is very large and people's throats close up or swell super bad and they need an EpiPen. So that's that anaphylactic thing that is like a very exaggerated IgE response. It's very dangerous. Worst case, worst case scenario for allergy. Worst case scenario. And the same thing can happen like, you know, so with some it's with food or bee sting, but it's that like IgE immune response and it's very hypersensitive. But you can have an IgE response that would be less severe of reaction. So I know people that will have, well, it's fine. I just, you know, my mouth gets really itchy, but it doesn't last for long after I have, and they'll name the food. It's usually a fruit or a nut is the common things that I hear, or they might get a little tingly or they might get a little hives. So it's really funny how people can downplay some of these, particularly if they like the food. Um, so those are, that is also usually an IgE response with those types of them versus a Food sensitivity can activate other immune responses that may not necessarily be an immune globulin like IgE or IgA or even IgG, which I'm going to explain in just a second. You can get like a histamine response, prostaglandins, cytokines. These are all in-stage immune responses. So these are the things that cause reaction in your body. And so the responses that a person may experience will be dependent on that person's genetic makeup and various other factors, but they would be things like we mentioned before, migraines, diarrhea, constipation, chronic constipation, eczema, bloating, um, heartburn, though, depending on the type of heartburn, it can also present as in a food allergy as well called EOE. And so those are the tops, but we have seen a wide variety of reactions in our practice of things that Joint pain can be one of the reactions that we we see in our practice. I've had several clients in the last year where we worked on joint pain with immune response and food sensitivities. But if the immune system is doing well, then typically it will be less common to have an allergy or sensitivity. So true food allergies are actually quite rare in the general population, though we hear about them a lot. And then sensitivities are increasing largely because of the amount of things that our body has and inflammation that we're exposed to on a regular basis. So food sensitivities will tend to increase as our immune system struggles overall from those insults that we're exposed to day in and day out and inflammation. And so we start to lose what we call in my world oral tolerance. But at the same time, You can have a few sensitivities and intolerance and still have a robust immune system. It's really variable. So there would be like those couple of foods that really give you some havoc, but by and large, yeah, your immune system's doing well. You're super healthy. So it's really variable on, you know, what you're exposed to, how sensitive you are, so on and so forth. 
Awesome. And then, then there's intolerances, which this one mm. would most people can think of with like the most common one is like milk. So people often say I'm allergic to milk, which would activate the IgE or the IgA response. But that is typically related to the actual milk proteins. And then there's the intolerance, which is because you are lacking enough of or any of the enzyme needed to break down lactase, which is a carbohydrate molecule in your small intestine. So it doesn't get absorbed and then have the downstream effects of this carbohydrate, these, this chain, this two carbon unit not absorbing like it's supposed to. And that's where you get that severe gas and bloating and for some diarrhea. And so that is what most people talk about when they talk about, I can't, I, can't, I don't do well with milk. But separately, you can have enough of the lactase enzyme, but you are sensitive to the proteins in the milk, such as whey or casein. And you have a response to that, which may or may not be digestion related or could be headaches or skin or whatever. Dairy is so tricky. And for me, it's so subtle, you know, and so I like the test that we do because it does at least break down some different types of dairy because we've learned like some people might do well with milk, but not cheese or vice versa or soft cheese versus hard cheese. And so a lot of times people just cut dairy out altogether, which is, you know, fine. We're not like dairy pushers. You can totally do that. But, you know, there, there can be other ways to just learn more about like, well, what's actually going on. Yeah, I just had this come up. Actually, I gave somebody the results on Friday. And then she was like, wait, I see. And I forgot to go over the whole, you know, yogurt versus cottage mm-hmm. cheese versus cheese and cow's milk. It was all se- it's all separated out. And it makes no sense. But because one of the none of them were reactive, I just didn't we didn't go over it like I normally do one of them just is like in phase two or three. And so she's like, wait, I noticed I can have yogurt, but cow's milk is not until phase two. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. So I had to explain that difference because it makes no sense to people because it's how the protein is different. So, you know, when you naturally ferment something, you know, the, the, the milk, it is a new protein structure. And so that's what your body could be reacting to in that way. Same thing. Some people do okay with like cooked eggs, like cooked in things, but not necessarily eggs on their own. But like, if it's like part of like a whole dish, like a baked good, they're okay. Or same, they might do okay with dairy products baked into something, but not milk or yogurt or cheese, but they can do butter and something. Right. Because the heat or the way that it's processed changes the protein. Correct. Yeah. So if something is raw versus cooked, your body can react differently to that because the protein structure does change, particularly in like eggs and milk and stuff. This is an excellent segue into the next big one. You know, a lot of people, they might just try not having gluten. So let's talk about wheat and gluten because a lot of times people that might be suffering and they intuitively think it's wheat, mm-hmm. will go to their doctors, get a celiac test, they find out they're not celiac, so then they go back on wheat. And they feel bad, yeah. And now they're suffering. And they're like, well, it's not, can't be the wheat. Yeah, so thank you for mentioning that first, that they'll go to the, to go to the doctor and get tested for celiac first, because many people that I see actually don't do that process first. 
I do want people to get that ruled out first because if you eliminate wheat and then you need to find out is, am I intolerant or do I have celiac? Because it matters because of the way that they function, the way that they function in your body. If you take it out in order to get an accurate celiac test, you have to have had it in your system pretty recently. And so then people will take it out, feel good. And they want to get that celiac test and then they have to eat gluten again and then they feel terrible. So while you're already not feeling right, get the test and then we eliminate. And then, which is good for food allergies too. It's like, it doesn't hurt to rule out the allergies first. Correct. Yeah. So we, I always really recommend people to get celiac screen first while the antibodies could be the highest in your system. And then if it's not that, sometimes there is one component on the test. Everything will be negative for the celiac markers. By the way, they only test for three of the markers. So there is that controversy. There's more than, you know, one or two proteins. There's Yeah, so there's only three markers on the test. And one of them is related to SIGA, which is secretory. Um, IGA, so that's like your, your IGA is in your mucus layer. So your nose, your throat, your lungs, your Ooh. intestines. So all the mucusy layers in your body. And so IGA, cause it's the first line of defense. So if that one is high, but everything else is low, then the doctors will say, you don't have celiac. And I'll be like, you don't have celiac, but you have an intolerance. And so I always ask to see the test results, even though they say, my doctor says I don't have celiac. I was like, let me see it just so I can see what the IGA number is. Anyways. So in wheat, gluten, gliden, there's about 27 different proteins that people can react to. And so in celiac, it is that intolerance to the gliden or what we call gluten. And in that, the immune response is trying to deal with the gliden in your small intestine. Your small intestine actually gets damaged in celiac. And because of that damage, you are getting many of the downstream effects of malabsorbing iron and protein and B12 and just nutrients as a whole because your small intestine surface area of absorption is getting damaged versus a sensitivity to wheat or gluten. You're not having that same tissue destruction. It's not good, right? Sensitivity is still not good. You're still feeling bad. You're still having inflammation. It can still create leaky gut. You can still have problems, but like the actual like irreversible damage that celiac can have is very different. So that's kind of the difference is, is that you still want to take a sensitivity very serious because it is still creating other problems. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the benefit for doing food sensitivity tests versus doing a just elimination diet, which is kind of, you know, people talk about the elimination diet as being the gold standard way to figure these things out. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why it's the gold standard. Even when you go, when I did my functional medicine testing, it's like, what is the gold standard? And I'm like, poppy squash, but <laughs> it's considered the standard elimination diet is considered the gold standard, which only accounts for like the most common foods that cause issues like gluten, dairy, soy, shellfish, fish, and egg. And there might be like a couple others, but for a lot of people, it's, it might be one of those foods or a couple of those foods, 
but it does not account for the things like the fruits and vegetables that people are sensitive to. So you just take out these top six to eight allergens. It depends on the doctor. Some people will take out corn now and they still don't feel good. And it's because they don't do well with grapes or cucumbers, like all these things that you're like, you can have as much as these other things just don't have this or chicken, right? Like I read a huge case study about this gal with psoriasis and like covered 90% of her body. And the guy did like, it was part of it was gut microbiome, but he did a food sensitivity test and it was chicken. And once she eliminated chicken, like the rest of the, you know, her psoriasis went away. So it can be a wide variety of things that you are commonly eating or eating some enough to where it's, you know, causing you problems. Yeah. And that's funny that you bring up chicken because that is such a common thing we see on results because it is such a common protein that people consume or that are bananas, <laughs> you know, because a lot of people eat a banana every day. It's just. Yeah. It feels like it's in cyclical because, you know, we'll get those, those ones. Like everybody seems to be similar, but lately I haven't, it's been a few since I've had corn come up and I'm like, oh, okay, good. I was like convinced. I was starting to be like, is the lab just putting reactive on everybody's corn now? But you know, you get a little skeptical sometimes, but anyway, then there's like tyramines, like natural food chemicals, sulfites and things of that, that nature that people might be reacting to these natural chemicals found in food. And that's really what's driving them because, you know, they'll be eating a lot from that, a lot of foods that contain those natural chemicals and it's creating some other issues. And so if we can do testing, you know, oftentimes we, even though it is still a process that you go through with the diet that we do based on your test, at least it's like, start here. It's just not like a guessing game am I going to eliminate all these foods for three weeks and still feel terrible? Yeah. It gives a lot more guidance. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, I, there's no way I would have ever discovered that lemons was that thing for why your jaw locked up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm sure maybe my intuition would have been like, maybe it's the lemons, you know, but it just sometimes without it looking you Mm -hmm. in the eyes, you know, we don't, maybe our intuition doesn't kick in or we're not making the connections, you know, that can be hard to do. Yeah. And my favorite is like when you sneeze whenever you have vanilla. I know. Well, vanilla was like that for a long time. I luckily have not had that (laughs) reaction to vanilla in a while. And I think Mm. probably it's because I did look at how much vanilla I was intaking. It was like at the time, I mean, gosh, this was like 10 years ago when I was Mm. using, you know, vanilla coffee Mm -hmm. creamer and, you know, just consuming a lot more vanilla in my life. And then I, I kind of whittled out. And so now if I have vanilla, it's it's definitely not giving me that reaction, but lemons still do. Lemons still do. And I know that yours, I I still find it fascinating is paprika. Is that still? Well, it's because I was literally putting smoked paprika in everything that I was eating. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? That is a spice that I am obsessed with. But like my daughter's, when we did hers, so I mean, we knew that wheat was like one of her big ones. I mean, she had hardcore eczema and it still flares up. But like we were like, what are the other things? And it ended up being grapes And it was like Mm -hmm. grapes, raisins, like these are all good, fun kid 
friendly foods that they like to eat and, you know, are around. And so it was like grapes and raisins. And then I was using at the time grapeseed oil. So I'd stop using that because that was causing an issue. And then one time I made these like cake things and you use cream of tartar to, to bind it together, you know, in a way. Which I'm a trained chef and I still don't actually know what cream of tartar is. Yeah. So anyway, so you used it for that and it turns um, out it's from grapeseed. And so she has, it's like massive reaction, but now it took like, how old was she then? So I think she was like two or three. And by the time she finished primary at the Montessori school, she could have yeah. the raisins. <laughs> so at the, you know, the, the holiday parties that they would have in their little class. And so, you know, through just healing her gut, the pineapple, and she still doesn't really love, it still does something funny to her mouth. So she's like, she'll only have like a little bit sometimes. And it's like, it's like natural self-selection. And mine was grapefruit. Mm. I hate grapefruit. And I was like, yes, thank God. This is why. I had a reason. Yeah. Well, you have to wonder if that's not an innate biological thing where we dislike things that maybe are not good for us. But it can also go the other way. Like people mm-hmm. love dairy and they're like, I can't live without dairy. And oftentimes cytokines that are produced from these foods that we love so much make them so exciting and so addictive. So the inflammation, one of the inflammation responses is creating the addiction. It's so messed up. <laughs> you scratch the itch and it just, it hurts. It hurts so good, but then your skin's like bleeding, but you don't care and you're still scratching it. Like that's kind of the example of being addicted to a food that is not really serving you. Yeah. So other examples I just want to share with people like why I believe in this test so much and how it's been so helpful is like, for example, we had somebody that, you know, was, it was time to put cabbage back in and she had green cabbage. Everything's fine. She wanted to change things up. Had some purple cabbage. Things were not fine. (laughs) So like, you know, even within like green to purple. So like being really mindful about food and things like that can be really helpful. And then another, I remember another early on client, she was trying sesame. Like she had a different reaction to tahini than she did to sesame seeds and sesame oil. They were all different. One was, they were all so different. It was so interesting. So anyways. That is, yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Because, yeah, if you just did the elimination diet, you probably wouldn't learn some of this stuff. Correct. Yeah. And then also we do talk about, just as a little side note, you know, sometimes, yeah, it's the type of food, whether it's purple cabbage or green cabbage, but sometimes it's also like dose, which is always interesting. Correct. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. I had forgot to put that in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we we're going to talk about it, but it's like the dose of, you know, like I know for me and crab, <laughs> <laughs> the famous crab for you. One of my favorite foods. Yeah. If I eat too much crab, it's like, I am done. I have like a full food allergy reaction or I'm not food, re- food allergy, a full like food poisoning reaction where I have like just GI upset for 24 hours and it's just awful. But I could have like a little bit of crab and be totally fine. So I don't know. I always think that's really interesting too. 
And that's the same thing we see a lot with like some of the natural food chemicals like tyramines and phenylethamines and the nitrates and stuff like that. Like some of that solanine. So some of those can be dose. And so I always say, keep it really limited. And then when you have something that's like, you know, aged, see how you feel because it could be the natural. Cause I know tyramines are like a big one for migraine sufferers. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about what kinds of tests are available. You know, how accurate are they and how are, how are we testing for these things? Yeah, so the IgE and the IgA test that allergists do is a blood or skin prick test. So those are the most common ways. So if you were to go to a doctor and get an allergy test from them, it would be one of one of those two or both. And then, which those can really be helpful. So I've had clients, you know, have be sensitive with soy on the skin and on the other test. I'm like, all right, we got to avoid all the soy. Um, and I can, I've had people show up with, you know, skin prick tests that didn't show up on the other. And so I say it doesn't mean that one's invalid versus the other. It just means it's testing for different things in your immune system. But so like the IgE, and plus I also say like those skin prick tests and things can be helpful because if say you had several tree allergies, there is a thing called cross reactivity. And so then you may not do well eating things like melons or apples or something because they have a similar cross reactivity protein thing related. And so you may find that like, oh, actually, I don't feel good when I have these because you have a lot of allergies to these certain trees or grasses or whatever. So there's that component. Which is a good point. Because sometimes people will say, well, I'm, I know I'm allergic to apples, but it does not show up on the MRT test. And we're like, still avoid the apples. Exactly. Yeah. So again, not every test is perfect. So, you know, that's why w- when we do it, there is a very specific protocol that we follow. We don't just say, here's results, avoid those reactive foods, because that's just, that's that's not gonna, that's gonna get a lot of the issues, but it's not going to get everything. Plus we can't test for every single food. So there's that. And then like, you know, latex allergies, you may be, if you're allergic to that, you might be sensitive to bananas or strawberries. So, but for food sensitive sensitivity tests, the most widely used is in other practices is that very, a lot of companies offer IgG. And so that's a blood test. I think I've seen some saliva ones and I have no idea if those are accurate or not raises an eyebrow, but you know, I'm willing to learn about it. But anyways, and then that one company that tests for all the different gliadin proteins, they do IgG and IgA for various foods, like on the same test. And then we do one that's called MRT, which is called a mediator release testing. And it's not testing a specific immune globin. It is testing the downstream effects that can happen like mast cells, histamines, cytokines, prostaglandins, and so on. And it is a blood test. There is another company called Alcat, and it is also a media release test. And the story goes is that the people that ran MRT. It's a business thing. <laughs> anyways, they were the same. And then they split. Yeah, they split. And supposedly the Alcat um, technology has not been as updated as the MRT. I don't really know. I don't really want to get into the hearsay of it all. The drama of the functional medicine world. 
the drama of it all. But um, I just, I use the MRT. It's, the process is great. Um, so like early on in our practice, we did try using the IgG because I was doing all this functional medicine training and they kept poo-pooing my tests. And so I was really second guessing, you know, what I was seeing clinically um, and what I was seeing in my daughter and that. Um, but like IgG is really about memory. So it's what we want and when what they're talking about when, you know, you get vac- the COVID vaccine or some other vaccine or you get exposed to the flu naturally, you want that, that memory. So that way, if the invader comes in again, your immune system goes, I've seen you before and you do not belong here, right? But you can also have a memory response to a food antigen that's not necessarily going to cause a problem. So sometimes, you know, it's not going to show up or you can have, it's just, or that's not the the end stage that's going to happen in the, um, activate that IgG response. And so that's kind of how I like to do it. And so I just had to come to terms with the fact that what I see clinically in my own practice and from other dietitians that use this test have amazing results. And so if they don't, they don't like it because they don't, they say it doesn't make sense. Then I say there's no way that we could all be getting placebo effect by the, you know, the thousands um, of people that are getting help with it. So anyways, we use the MRT test. Um, what you do from that is we have our, the results and then we base all of your, your food elimination diet off of your results and not just say, avoid these foods for the, forever and ever. It's a very much a process. So you don't feel so overwhelmed or like, what does that it? So. Yeah. Yeah. We have people who have maybe done this lab with other practitioners, but they were just handed the results and said, okay, here you go. <laughs> and it didn't really um, help as much. So. Yeah. So I end up getting a lot of those people is like, they just gave yeah. me the results and then I kind of did it, but I kind of didn't, they didn't really know what to do with it. And so then they come and then we do the process and then that's how they get the, the true long-term um, success and finding out like what really we focus on, what is your library of foods that you can eat and feel good? Right. Exactly. Versus focusing on, oh, I can't have this and I can't have that. That's not, that's not that helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that can be really challenging. Well, it's interesting that you said that, you know, there are some functional doctors that dislike this test or maybe don't believe in it or whatever. And, you know, I just wanted to also, because I'm sure people are asking, well, why, why won't my doctor just do this test for me? Can you speak to that just a little bit? Yes, because they only believe, well, I don't, I'm, most doctors will only believe in the IgE test. And then especially if they are more towards the allergist side, um, that's all that they believe in. And some will be like, even some doctors will even be like, oh, the IgG test is blah. But, you know, it's just what they learn and then kind of get stuck in a rut on not thinking about more than what's available. Yeah, there is data on these particular tests, these various tests that talk about, you know, what is the accuracy and, and all that, but it's it's usually maybe done with thin or are there third party people doing any studies on the validity? Yeah, right now, actually, there was a big recruiting um, effort. And um, I know the IgG tests have been studied 
in things. And then, and then they were doing, there was some initial studies a while ago, but I'm not sure why they didn't keep them up. But now they're running studies now with dietitians that are doing the MRT tests and showing that efficacy. So they they did the validity test, yes. So that's there, right? The reproducibility and the validity test. So that's there. And then now it's like, you know, backing it up with the the, the research with case studies. Which is also a good point. And you kind of said the magic word to me, which is dietitian, because frankly, even if your doctor could do this test, they wouldn't probably have the time or ability to support you <laughs> through the process. So it might not be a bad thing that they're not offering it. So Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I always say, especially for doctors, I, th- I think that, you know, it's hard for them because they do specialize and their, their time is so limited and is just sucked up by charting and all these things that they have to do that I think it might be challenging to kind of think outside of, you know, what they had to eat, sleep and breathe for eight years to pass all their exams. And so then they just kind of get into that mindset. Um, personally, and then it just might be challenging to get further, you know, knowledge beyond that. Yeah. I mean, the truth is it might even be a little bit out of their scope, maybe not allergists, but you know, it's just a different, it's a different thing. Yeah. And, you know, and we actually even have in the dietetics world, there is a group of dietitians that are very strongly opposed to MRT and IgG testing and only say, but we, you know, when I say we, I say the other MRT trained dietitians is, is like, we never say that we're doing an allergy test. We always say it is a food sensitivity, which are very different than allergies. And so they go above and beyond to basically harass <laughs> dietitians and refuse to look at the information and whatnot. So, yeah. I thought that some of that disagreement was also maybe stemming from the fact that we do have to maybe restrict some foods temporarily in this process and that it kind of goes against the idea of restricting is. No, that one, that argument, I, it could be for some, but this one is really more for the, you know, the hardcore, you know, thinking mm-hmm. that, you know, we're, we're telling people wrong information about food. And it's like, no, there is a, we know the difference between an allergy and a sensitivity. If you look at the immune system and we never say that we're doing allergy testing because that's what you do with a doctor. These are different. And so, but that's kind of what they are. But I will say, yes, we do have to, we can segue into that. Well, before we get to that, I did want to ask, do we want to speak just briefly on like, you know, I'm not trying, we're not here to sell you on this, but I do think it's important that we talk about a little bit of like what we've seen either personally and or professionally as far as like how this has been a benefit to people and improving symptoms. Yeah, it's always so amazing when somebody comes to you with daily headaches or very frequent migraines or IBS, diarrhea, that rules their life. And they cannot leave the house. It's very questionable. 
And now they have all this food freedom because they know the foods that are bringing them trouble. And so that has been the most, for me, it's been the ones I see the most success with is migraines, eczema, and diarrhea. And then my favorite was a client, not a favorite. You're all our favorites. (laughs) (laughs) I always say that, no, there's so many because I actually really love like all the stories. And so one that was really powerful to me was um, we had somebody with EOE. And that one is both um, IgE and um, food sensitivities. And so EOE is when you have high eosinophil esophagus. And so your esophagus actually over time will um, constrict and um, you have to have throat opening surgeries because of immune response happening. And we were able, I don't, um, we lost track with her, but we were, she was about to go in for another surgery to her throat and we were able to prolong that. Um, and then potentially, I don't know if she ever, you know, had to do it or was able to keep from again. And so like she couldn't eat like potatoes and stuff like that because they were too dry, no matter how, how big the bite was for her to swallow them without choking. So the fact that we could get her to the point where she was able to eat more foods without feeling like she was choking and really calm that inflammation down and prevent another surgery like that to me was like, ah, so that is an amazing story. I thought you were going to share one about a client that had eczema and she has shared this publicly before. Oh, psoriasis. And, you know, she was very self-conscious about it. But then, you know, after a certain amount of time and doing this process, she sent us like a, a photo of her, you know, in a swimsuit. Was it her? Was she doing yoga or was she water skiing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So she did. It was about, uh, it was a lot of different things. And for her, it was both her gut and her food. So it was like a multi approach. It was bacteria and food sensitivities. Like we did it in phases. So we kind of cleared out the last bit with food sensitivities. Yeah. Cause I would say for her, that was at least a year, right? Of, yeah, like really in this protocol and doing, you know, a lot of the work, but she just shared how much more confident she was. And she was, you know, happy to go to yoga and not have to cover up her arms and that kind of thing. And so I feel like, yes, just like, obviously not having psoriasis is amazing, but also that self-confidence, you know, that's so valuable to be able to take that into the world and go live your life. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I know, like, when Ming, my daughter, flares up, like, I know I can be like, oh, I can tell, like, like, what have you been eating the school lunch? Because we fought, we, you know, she eats it on the days that it's gluten free, but it's not gluten free every day. And I'm like, have you been eating the gluten lunch? I can tell when she's been eating gluten because her skin is, her behavior goes with it too. Whenever she's really itchy, she's really cranky. Yeah, I would be too. So who maybe should not try this in case anybody's wondering? Yeah, so we really work, we really caution people that have an eating disorder history that is still not fully recovered. Like if it, they're still easily triggered into those behaviors, we really caution against it because they can use it as another way to restrict what they eat and limit what they eat. So that's our number one red flag there. 
I also really don't like to do the test on people that are unwilling to cook their own food and do the elimination diet because they will not get the results. Like if they're like, well, I don't have time. And so I just eat out and da, 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 or whatever, or because then they say that the test didn't work. And then, but it's really not, it's just that they didn't go through the protocol. And that really matters. If you're eating out, you have no control over all the things they put in it, particularly the oils and seasonings that are, could be reactive. So I don't like that. So I feel like people have to be able to make a sacrifice to being able to find it is a commitment to being able to eat the, the diet as prescribed to get the results that you're looking for. And then I also don't love it when people want to do it just for weight loss. I'm like, well, I mean, I won't deny them it, but you know, well, it kind of goes back to that previous point you made about having, you know, commitment and being willing to cook your own food. Because if, it, if you're just here for a quick fix because you saw your friend go through it and she looks, she looks great, you know, then I don't know if that's like enough motivation to have the commitment to go through the protocol because it is, you know, it can be challenging and it is not a quick fix. It's not designed for weight loss by any means. Yeah, I mean... It can be a picture of because, you know, inflammation can cause you to hold on to weight that doesn't move in the same way that, you know, you would through movement or a change in healthy eating behaviors. But, you know, like, I really don't want this to be, you know, your neck because the, the other diet things didn't work. And so maybe it's food sensitivity is like, to maybe get somebody to a better place about their body and their health first. And then when we're like in a good spot, be like, okay, now we can do the food sensitivity test. Yes. Like, you know, I'd rather work with them on a lot of the mindset stuff first. And then if we're still not, you know, seeing relief in these ways that we view ourselves, then yeah, let's, let's work on food sensitivity tests. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, so I want to talk about the restriction, how it's not a diet. And one thing that also comes to mind is how even though there might be some foods that are off the table for sometimes it's a month, other times it might be for a very long time. But it doesn't mean that when you're doing this, that you're restricted on calories or that you you know, it's like, this is not a diet because you can eat as much as you know, you need to to feel full throughout the day. It's just like, well, maybe you don't get sourdough. Yes. So this is definitely not a low calorie, like it is not a low calorie plan. We do not want you to be hungry on it. You need to be well hydrated. Yes, there will be foods that you normally eat that you're not eating, but we want to find foods that you will eat and will feel full on and things like that. So we're definitely not trying to cut out calories in that way. We just are trying to change where you're getting those calories from so you don't have diarrhea or migraines. Yeah. And I do feel like the word restriction can be super triggering, especially for practitioners in the ED world or anyone who's lived through the ED world. And so, you know, when we're talking about that, it is for a very clear reason and it's often very temporary. Um, 
And also, you know, we've talked about this before where it's like sometimes the action can be the same where it's like, okay, well, am I restricting because I hate myself or am I restricting because I'm trying to improve my health? It can be a similar action that has previously had a bad name, but maybe we're doing it for a cause, you know? So I just want to be really clear about that. Yeah. And then people will be like, well, how is this different than FODMAP? Well, FODMAP is because FODMAP is the same. Like people will be like, well, I can't eat these foods that have these types of carbohydrate chains in it. And so there's, you know, if you look it up, you can find all the different foods that go with it. And so many people feel better when they go on FODMAP, but that's also supposed to be its own elimination diet. Like you take out these class of foods, these different categories of foods. And then after six weeks or something like that, you put them back in because you can't remain completely on a a strict FODMAP diet forever because it's too restrictive. It does end up altering your gut microbiome in the other direction, things like that. So all of these things are not meant to be so restrictive over time. Like when people get stuck in phase one or two or just on the tested foods, it's like, no, we remember we got to keep, you got to add foods in. Let's get some variety. Let's stop eating the same five things every day. So we got to add foods back in as soon as possible. It is very common, even for people who've never had any disordered behaviors, they just start to feel so good. Then they start to you know, be like a little bit worried about adding new things in. But that's what we're here for and why it's important to have that support through the process so that we're not becoming imbalanced or getting any kind mm-hmm. of, you know, strange relationship with food. And, you know, that happens like when we, we talked about the whole 30 in another podcast, you know, people sometimes it turns into whole 365. <laughs> and it's like, not really that's not intended to be the you know for for long term so that's that's the other reason why it's just important to actually have somebody to support you through the process do you have anything else to add on our food sensitivities discussion today i don't think so i feel i feel good and complete on this topic but i'm sure that people will have questions and so then that's where you know if we had we had callers (laughs) call in And they ask questions that I could answer them. But that's all that I can think of off the top of my head. How's that? Each week, we keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture or that perpetuate diet culture in some way. These are often the subtle ways it creeps in, which is why we are shining a light on it and sharing it with you. Okay, so I have a wonderful person that sent me two ads, and I can't, I have to do them both because they are so good. Oh my God, I can't even. So the first one were these ridiculous pictures, like graphic pictures. By the way, we are going to post these on our website podcast, so you'll have to put a link. We're going to put the link to it in the show notes so you can go to it because the pictures are just amazing. So the first one is basically a picture of a woman, but it's cartoonish. It's a drawing and she has got a blow dryer blowing up her crotch and something about heating up her nether regions allows you to burn fat. I don't even know how this is possible or why. And then we went um, clicked on it, of course, because why would you not? And there were pictures of real people. There was like, you know, doing it and saying this, doing 
this five second routine changed everything for me. And it's a, you know, a before and an after and, and somehow this blow dryer up her crotch or it could have been her in her tush. One shows up the front side and one shows up the back side and um, molecules that appear to be melting. I'm not really sure, but I love it. Above and beyond the ridiculous nature of this illustration, I'm still trying to figure out what they're actually selling. So is there a product involved or is this just like such clickbait that they're putting ads on wherever you click? This was, I think, just clickbait. Unless this is a special blow dryer that you purchase that has <laughs> some kind of special vapors that's yeah. going up your nether regions does. I, I just, I can't. It, it's it's just, too good. I love it so much. But you know, there are there's someone out there that is like, hmm. <laughs> Um, Mm. right it's amazing yeah and i'd love to see i'd love to see from a marketing and advertising perspective i'm like i'd love to see the numbers on the on whatever this was like i'm just dying to know well unfortunately i i added to those to their validation. I did. I couldn't help it. And then the other one that I got was detox slimming patch. And it's this thing that you put this patch in your belly button and it will melt the pounds away. And so there's lots of before and after photos of people that had, it heats down fat cells because it, it will inhibit the absorption of dietary fats and calories for reduced belly size. But also it says that it burns fat through your belly button. So somehow you both can not absorb fat and also burn the belly fat away through these herbs that go into it. I want to read this entire ad. I'm like scrolling through it and looking at there's so much to point out, but what what is the most interesting to me? First of all, there's eight reviews. It's only $19.99 for 10 pieces, which would allow you to lose three to five pounds. But if you buy 20 pieces, you can lose eight to 10 pounds. And if you buy 50, then you could lose 20 pounds. Yeah, most of the pictures are what I think about when there's the gal on Instagram that I like to um, check on her page every now and again. And so she shows like how, you know, like if you when you pull your pants up in a particular way, which there's one of these before and afters where her pants are down and you can tell she's pushing her belly and then you can tell she's pushing her belly out because you can't even see Anyways, and it definitely is probably airbrushed a little bit. And so I think that there's like a bunch of that. Like you can do things with how you hold your body and push your belly out to make it look big. So there's the before and afters that I'm like, this person is definitely pushing their belly out. Oh, I'm I'm like, yeah, that is a high rise versus low rise situation. I could take the same photo in two seconds. Yeah. And so I can see more. There's like just more of these things. And so, yeah, but people really 
there's a lot of pictures about and testimonials about this patch. But if you, there was one that was like, there was questions like, what if you have an Audi and not an any, what do you do with it? Oh, well, you just can put it anywhere on your belly and it'll be fine. So that's hilarious. Well, yeah, because there's pictures of people with it on their arm or wherever. You're like, wait, what? I can, or she had it on her thigh. The after giving birth one. So you're like, so where is it? Where am I supposed to put it? And I'm reading this review. It's, uh, it makes me sad to read. I'm sh- I don't know. Yes, it's, I hate, yeah, I know. I'm like, no. <laughs> yes. How did she- <laughs> yeah, because she gained 10 pounds after giving birth. <laughs> it's a, if it, well I'm, i won't read the whole thing but this one line says i want to become thin and beautiful i'm like yeah that sounds about normal there anyways i wanted to lose weight but i don't want to exercise this product perfectly <laughs> this product perfectly solved my confusion right confusion on how to get this done without exercising there you have it. Those are the bizarre, that's the traditional things that we see, just the bizarre stuff. And somehow it also melts fat and gets rid of gas and swelling, stomach cramps and bloating. It does all, it does everything that you need. And in case, and in case we're accidentally selling you on these, I just want to say that if these things actually worked, we would all just buy them and do them and be perfect. And that's not happening. So it's not real. <laughs> Just in case you need some reinforcement that it's not real. <laughs> yeah. But every once in a while, you're like, how is this possible? You're like, how is this? Like, I want to know how they get all these before and after photos. That's, I think that's really what it is. They pay people. <laughs> and then they also sell some very other strange things. So I'm just like, eh. You ever see those ads where they're like, we'll pay you to lose eight pounds? You're like, who? Somehow you can also get things for a green tea mask and a foot soak. And so I'm like, mm, pretty sure this is not where I want to buy my, my my slimming patches from. This feels not safe. Yeah, no. I mean, it's crazy. Anybody, anybody can sell anything, especially now, which is kind of crazy. So I sure hope we gave you something new to think about today and helped you take one more step on your path to freeing yourself from diet culture. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at path underscore nutrition. And you can always go to our website to find more information on these wonderful diet ads or send us a message. Go to our website, (laughs) pathnutrition.com. We'll see you next week.